right. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Creating Structure podcast with John Wheaton. It's great to be with you again. This, uh, I think, is our fifth or sixth podcast, and I'm really, really pleased to have Helen Sanders of Techniform with us. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm privileged. I, I feel really honored to be here with you. Although it turns out I'm actually only, what, 10 miles up the road, five miles up the road from you? That's right. This is our, for the audience listening, this is our first remote-based podcast due to COVID. Uh, Helen is in her office in, at Techniform, and I am at my office, the world headquarters of Wheaton & Sprague Engineering, in our podcast studio, and we are 10 miles apart between Stowe and Twinsburg but we're doing this virtually. So bear with us. Hopefully our, my uh, audio engineer extraordinaire, Josh, will get everything edited properly and it'll sound good. So that's just fun. So Helen, um, you're extremely involved in the facade industry as a general manager and leader at Techniform in multiple groups. But before we go into some of our discussions on innovation and such, um, Let's ask you about your background. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Um, just kind of tell us who you are. Oh, wow. So um, originally, as you can probably tell from my um, accent, I'm from the UK. Um, I was born and brought up in a county called Devon, which is in the southwest of, of England. Um, basically, it's farming country, and I used to live in a market town in the middle of uh, Devon, and um, I went to the local public school, um, went through um, the entirety of my uh, middle school, elementary school, middle school, high school career in that town, and uh, at the age of 18, I was lucky enough to be admitted to um, Cambridge, and so I did my um, undergraduate degree in natural sciences with a specialty in um, chemistry at uh, the University of Cambridge. And then I continued there to do a PhD for the next uh, three or so years um, with uh, Professor David King, who eventually became the um, advisor to the British Prime Minister, the scientific advisor to the British Prime Minister. That's a fun fact to know. Really cool guy. The guy was a South African and he escaped um, South Africa because he was an anti-apartheid um, demonstrator and activist. And he got out just in time because uh, they were coming after him. I could, we could talk the entire podcast just about apartheid and his, his having to flee from the, that's, that's a fascinating fact. That's why I always ask people to introduce themselves. So in a nutshell, for a layman like me, you're really, really smart. You went to Cambridge and did, we're talking about C.S. Lewis Cambridge, right? We're talking about, or no, is he an Oxford guy? Um, you know, I don't know, um, but we are talking about Cambridge, um, University of Cambridge, um, yeah. and I wouldn't say I'm necessarily smart. I just worked really, really hard. Sure. And That's I what all smart people say. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of playtime, put it like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, anybody in a field like this, anybody in a science or technical field doesn't have a lot of playtime in school. It's, it's 24-7, 365. So you went to Cambridge. You got your <laughs> PhD at Cambridge then? Yes, I did. Now, was, was that in chemistry? I was in um, a field of chemistry called surface science, and that's where um, Professor David King has had his specialty. 
Um, so yeah, I was originally um, destined to go into the chemical industry because the work I was doing was really focused on um, the interaction of metals, i.e. catalysts and uh, organic materials. Um, but when I graduated, um, we were in the middle of a recession and um, guess who was hiring? The glass industry. So at that point, what year, what, when was that? About what time? That I came out of Cambridge after doing my PhD in the um, spring of 1994. Okay. So at that point, Pilkington was hiring. They had a technology center up in the northwest of the UK. Um, and they hired me to do um, research and development on um, low E and um, other active coatings. So I was involved in online low E coating development and also in the self-cleaning glass. Most of our audience will know about Pilkington, but for those who aren't in the glass industry, give us a quick bio on Pilkington and then what low E means. Okay. So the um, Pilkington was at the time the world's largest glass manufacturer. They um, they were the developer of the float process for making of making float glass. Um, they were um, they're a UK-based company. They're now owned by the Japanese company NSG, uh, and they continue to be one of the large flat glass uh, manufacturers. And in in the US, they they purchased a long time ago what was Libby Owens Ford, and since then, of course, is Pilkington North America. Gotcha. <clears throat> And when did you come to the United States? So I came to the United States in the fall of 1998. Um, in fact, about the day before um, uh, the day before Halloween. So coming up to the anniversary um, here now. <laughs> um, so the story was I met my husband when I went to Pilkington and uh, we wanted to get out of the UK because if anyone knows the weather in the UK, it's pretty miserable, rains a lot, and um, we wanted to basically go work in another country. So we were looking at various places, um, Australia, New Zealand, um, and the US. Uh, and he got a job um, with Sage, um, who most people know in the glass industry, they make electrochromic uh, glazing. Um, and so I said, well, you're not going without me. So... <laughs> <laughs> so um, I accompanied him on a spousal visa, um, and then I looked for a position to some, for somebody to sponsor me for an H-1B, a work visa, and um, I was actually going to um, get a job with Seagate, who is actually um, based in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Um, but just as I was, a, um, I was going to accept that position, um, uh, the founder of Sage, um, John Van Dyne, said, well, Helen, why don't you come work for us? That's nice. Yeah. So um, both of us then worked for Sage, and um, I worked there for many, many years, um, almost, I guess it was uh, 18 years, uh, until I left at the end of 2016 um, to join Technoform. And Outstanding. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a great opportunity. I learned a lot. We started with, you know, 10, 15 people and built the company to, um, you know, 150, almost 200 people in that time. Great to build the market. I got so many experiences that I never would have uh, got if I'd have stayed in a large company. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, as a result, I don't fit in any particular silo anymore. 
mm-hmm. because and I love to do lots of things, wear lots of hats, and that's what happens when you're in a small company. As I'm sure that you you uh, realize too, you 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 have that too, John. You have to have a lot of tools in the tool chest. You got to be flexible and nimble, and um, you know the glass and glazing business and the exterior facade business. It's always been a bit entrepreneurial. Um, it ranges from a bit corporate to extremely entrepreneurial. But if you were at Pilkington, then you understand that corporate pedigree. Like when I was at PPG, big, strong, powerful, deeply rooted, and then you know Sage, basically a, a young, innovative. I mean, a part of a huge corporation eventually, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but just a small, innovative place. So that. That's wonderful. None of us in this industry seem to really fit exactly in anything. We're a lot of square pegs and round holes, and that's what makes it so good. Right. And at Tenderform, it's great because I can wear lots of hats here too. It's a very small, innovative company. Um, business units are self-determined. They act as, as individual businesses. Um, and, you know, great entrepreneurial company, great technology. Um, yeah. fit for me, staying within the window industry. Um, I love new, I really like moving the market to try, you know, educating and um, trying to move us to higher performing products. Fantastic company, very interesting, very innovative in how they're structured. So you, I mean, for the people listening that are in our industry, they'll know Pilkington, Sage, Techniform, all innovative places, top-notch places. And I want to move then into some of the topics we talked about prior because I, I met you when you were at Sage. Mm-hmm. You're a good presenter. You have a passion for technology and innovation. And there, you know, that smart glass industry is on the cutting edge and has been. And so we, we were talking about innovation and some of the struggles with getting new technology adopted in the construction industry. And I think it's going to be a fun conversation. There's some really good uh, – passion points and soapboxes there <laughs> to talk about. So um, just talk about innovation. How are you involved with innovation right now? And I want to make sure we, we mention about facade tectonics as well as we get into this. Well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm involved in innovation on many fronts, both within Technoform. You know, we're, um, we're always um, looking for opportunities to make windows better. I say we don't make windows, we make windows better. So generally thermally, but with a focus on durable thermal performance. So as you know, we've just um, launched a, um, we've gone outside of windows and we've launched a thermally broken cladding attachment to really support the improvement of the opaque areas of the envelope, which um, everyone thinks is better than a window. But when you attach them with non-thermally broken systems, they end up not being as good as you thought they are. And really substantially not as good as we thought they are. Right. And lots of condensation issues within the wall that you can't see. I mean, it's scary, actually. It is. So we launched that um, just recently in response to, you know, some feedback from the industry and needing something that was not just high performance thermally, but also easy and fast to install. So yeah. really that's, that's been our, our focus. Um, we also have, um, you know, tremendous innovations going on in our thermal break um, part of our business, um, as well as um, some new products on the, on the spaces side. In terms of um, kind of innovation, 
I also think about innovation, not just in making new high-performance um, things, uh, uh, but I also think about the adoption because one of the challenges we have is that we, we have lots of great high-performing products, but they just aren't being used enough. Are they not being used enough because they're not approved from a codified um, building code point of view or because people are slow to receive or because of I, people aren't willing to write a check? You know, I think it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's driven by codes and it's a cost issue. So generally higher performance products cost more, but if, they are, um, if they're required by code, they tend to happen, right? But what what, yeah. what our codes allow us to do is, you know, we have the prescriptive path and we have the performance path. Prescriptive yeah. path says, you know, if you go this route, your windows have to be a certain new factor, they have to have a certain solar heat gain coefficient uh, and so on. And the same, you know, prescriptively for every element of the building. But on the performance path, you get a lot more flexibility. You have to simulate the building you've designed and you have to demonstrate that it has the same energy use intensity as simulated than the base case building, which is based on the prescriptive path numbers. Now, in principle, that sounds great, right? It gives you a lot of architectural freedom. But in practice, it also gives you ability to trade off a really efficient lighting and HVAC system with a poorer performing envelope. And if you look at the economics of the building, it tends to be cheaper to have higher efficiency internal systems than a, than a really great envelope. Mm, and so okay. developers tend to want the lowest cost code compliant building. Sure, so, that's understandable. So you tend to therefore end up with buildings that have potentially lower performing um, fenestration than is even required through the prescriptive path because of those trade-offs. Is that true on a life cycle cost though as well? Like, cause I know Mick Patterson talks about this too. And you know, sometimes building owners, they will pay a little more, but I'm sensitive to the developer, building owner, cost per square foot, competitive environments. Um, so is that, is that initial cost of HVAC system, high efficiency versus lower performing facade, does that play out from a building maintenance and operating cost point of view for 25 years, for instance? Well, I, I, the thing is, I'm not sure that the developers are looking at that because a lot of them are flipping them or there are mm -hmm. split incentives if they're renting them, you know, that maybe they don't care so much about these longer term term issues so it's a very much a first cost issue but but that's just one piece of it um sure you know if you're trying to get new technologies in then you have this issue with um i i need to have three equivalents right in my school. yeah um and uh, you know in, if you're in a public bid that's that tends to be the case even in private bids um sometimes that's um that's also the case and then, you know, I also have come across this, well, we want to use innovative products, but we need to have something that's got a 10, 20 year track record. Well, those two are not consistent with each other. Yeah, well said. Right. But I mean, I'm not even talking about really 
you know, really step change in technologies. I'm, you know, really at this point just talking about um, incremental improvements in, say, fenestration technology. I mean, everybody has, an, well, so everybody, a lot of, of manufacturers have an R5 window, but how many of them are actually being specified right now? And so with the sod tectonics, what, we're, what we've been working on is looking at some of those barriers to, to existing technology adoption. So, you know, we have DOE that's working on funding new technology development. And we would say, well, that's great, but we've got a lot of existing technologies that haven't been adopted yet. Yeah, I, I like this point. You, you made this point to me when we were, I, I had said we should have started the recording last week when we were on Bluetooth. You, you made the statement, I wanna hear a little bit more from you on this, that it's not that we don't have innovative products. We have a lot of innovative products, but they're not being utilized. They're not being broadly adopted. And so let's talk about the situation where it's not a building code issue. It may not really be a big cost issue, but there's just a reluctance to develop the technology. Like that is true in the construction industry. What's your experience there? And, and do you feel like you're doing some work in facade tectonics to spread the news about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly a resistance to do, um, you know, new things. People get comfortable with doing the same thing. You know, one of the things that, that I talked to when I was doing some research in what was going on in California, I talked to a local glazing contractor. And one of the things that he said was that we as a glass industry just don't get involved early on in the design process. Whereas mm -hmm. the HVAC engineers do. And what ends up happening is they're running their simu energy simulation models to you know, look at HVAC capacity and then already making assumptions of the envelope at yeah. that point before we get involved. And so, so they're driving it. So they're driving the decision-making process right. more. Right. And so, so by the time we get involved, the design is almost baked. And it's very hard for us to come in and make some, um, some give some better ideas on, on how it's done. And so, you know, that's a challenge. We need to figure out how as a glass and glazing industry, we get into that design process um, earlier. And then we, we've got to figure out how we break the cycle of, you know, this combination of HVAC and, and envelope worked last time in the building, you know, let's build it again the same way. But you know, at, at Facade Tectonics, we have a we just created an advocacy committee to really okay. look at um, influencing codes and standards because that's where you know where we felt as as a group. And when I say a group, you know, we have participants coming from the glazing contractor community, the architectural community, the the consultant community, the ownership community, uh, and also manufacturers um, uh, like myself. Uh, you know, they come to the table and we're, we're sharing, you know, where are the, where are the constraints? Where are the hurdles that are, that are stopping us getting better envelopes? And to some extent, it's not necessarily, it's not always the specification of good products. It's also, are we commissioning them well? Are we building them well? You know, do we, oh, yeah. you know, there's a whole spectrum from design yep. to occupancy that we need to look at. Yeah, And, you know, the DOE asked for some response to their, they had a um, proposal for new research 
and they asked for, they had a call for, um, for response. And facade tectonics um, wrote a very long 10, 10 plus page uh, response on what we thought um, should be a focus for investment. And a lot was focused on improving uh, modeling tools, improving codes and standards, both um, from the um, from the stringency side, but also on the um, compliance side. I mean, what we find right now, I mean, and I'm going to get on my soapbox, is we have this, this EUI myopia. So energy, en energy use intensity myopia, right? So energy use intensity, yes. Built a building's energy per square foot per year. Uh, and we say as long as the building hits this target, it's fine, right? It, it's that any two buildings that have the same EUI are equivalent. Doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. But the problem right. is it does. And not just because it's not all about energy. It, you know, we should be looking at embodied carbon. We should be looking at comfort. We should be looking at passive survivability and all those things that aren't energy related. But also because the way we calculate EUI is not accurate. So when we look at our building models, we don't take into account thermal bridging on the envelope. So all the things that we were just talking about with the attachment of, of cladding, um, we're really not capturing these things. We, we overestimate the performance of spandrel already because we're not taking into account the, um, some thermal bridging there within the panel and between the panel itself and the, um, uh, the, trans, uh, the transparent areas. So we're not taking into account what I call these parasitic losses, which if you, if you talk to the guys from Morrison and Hirschfeld, um, Stefan Hoffman, um, also yep. of FTI, um, you know, he'll give you a lot of stats about this, but they, they would tell you that now we've improved the, what they call the clear field areas of the fenestration and the opaque areas to a, a, a certain point now that the main drivers of energy loss are coming from the perimeter where you've attached them and the and those um, point and linear sources of, of thermal bridging. Right. And we're not taking account of them in the in the in, in the EUI calculation. So we so, trade off the the envelope performance uh, and making it less good. You're actually making it even less good than you thought you were. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a minute. So, we're, so the, the, the U value, for instance. Mm -hmm. So you're assuming a certain U value for the facade, correct, when you're doing the EUI calculation? Yep. yep. And that U value has to be accurate. And it's, first of all, Therm doesn't I deal with opaque areas well. You have to work through that. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that depending on how the panel or opaque areas of the wall are analyzed, they, they could be as much as 40% worse than what they're actually calculated at. Yep. They may even meet the overall U value, but have condensation issues, dew point issues inside the wall from a screw that penetrates through that is not thermally broken. Right. And there's a number of products that can handle that. So it's a very interesting, uh, we want to run with this for a minute because to your point, we can, I have not done the EUI calc. You, you are more familiar with that, but we've got the EUI. It does matter, you said, how you get there. We're not even using the correct U value 
on the wall system, even if we're taking into the account the, the metal, you know, correctly, the, the perimeter, metal versus glass, et cetera, and then it ignores the transitions, right? So we get to transition areas where our U value for the whole wall may be fine, and now we've got terrible air resistance or terrible thermal resistance, or you meet it and you've got a condensation issue. And this has always been, even outside of EUI, it's always been my issue. I brought this up in one of the panels at, um, at the BEC, and I blogged about it. Like, you've got to deal with condensation formation. Mm -hmm. You've got to deal with dew point right. because you can have a wall that looks like it performs. And now we have owners call us and say, I've got a leak in, I've got a leak somewhere. And it's not a leak in the, in the building. It's pouring in because of condensation. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We struggle with that too, because, you know, again, you know, I can get on my soapbox about um, how we uh, rate windows. I mean, we talk about the U factor of a fenestration unit, which is great because it's a weighted average, mm -hmm. but it leads to some unintended consequences because what happens is people tend to focus on the center and they right. drive the center really low. You know, like the worst case, you, you put a triple pane in an unthermally broken frame. You can right. a reasonable U-factor that way, but you've, if you don't deal with condens the condensation resistance, you're going to have a real problem because yeah. condensation is driven by the edge, not the sun. Yeah. And, and so I've always you know, uh, been telling architects, don't just specify U-factor and expect you're going to get good condensation resistance and good thermal performance. You have to specify thermal performance separately from condensation resistance. Yeah, it and we have how to, you get there. We, I mean, the glass U value is quite accurate and, and predictable, but to your point, we've got to deal with the, the spacer issues, the, the edge of glass, and we've got to deal with where that glass is captured in. You know, I, I see more and more thermally broken systems. You know, when I first started in the business, it was a big deal to have a, a pour into bridge system. Mm -hmm. and we hated them as structural engineers. So we would specify skip to bridging, but nobody ever calculated the thermal performance of the skip to bridge where you leave an inch of metal every 12 because mm -hmm. it met the composite structural engineering moment of inertia needs, but it didn't really meet the thermal needs. But then when you go to polyamide, it's a much better situation and um, there's very prescriptive design tools. So yeah, specify whatever glass you want. I mean, we see glass sometimes at 0.22 or 0.21 or 0.26 but then the, the edge of the mullion, it's, you know, they're showing a 1600 wall with a standard nose piece. It doesn't work. Right. And, and that's why, you know, part of what we've been doing over the last few years is with our, our slogan or our tagline, spec the edge, is to really get people to start thinking about specifying the edge from a thermal perspective and a condensation res, uh, resistance perspective, because it isn't just about the center. The other thing that happens too is that people use the center of glass as a proxy for the overall fenestration unit value. And you know that com completely under, uh, um, overestimates we, the performance. We've, we've, we, do, we do therm analysis. Um, I've submitted, the, we've submitted the U value calculations to a customer and their first response has been, there's no way this calculation can be correct. That glass has a R, a, you know, a U of 0.25. You can't tell me it's 0.42. Yeah. Even, even with a reasonable 
basing, but you know, you get into some pretty heavy aluminum mass on the ends and you know, you're coming a foot from the edge and you're calculating these equivalent square footages. It has a tremendous impact on, it really brings down the U value yeah. or raises up the U value. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, you know, just going back to our conversation about, about codes and trying to see how to drive better fenestr- or, or better envelope performance is trying to limit that trade-off. Um, and because, as I said, you know, it's not just about EUI and we can argue over whether, you know, those, whether we actually have accurate ways of, of predicting EUIs. And I would say we don't because our simulation tools aren't accurate. But, you know, if you think about um, climate change or severe climate events or getting to net zero, I mean, a highly efficient uh, HVAC system is no use to you when the, the power's out. What you really exactly. need then is a really good envelope because if it's cold outside, you want to stop the inside getting to that temperature. Yep. And if it's hot outside, you really want to stop that heat getting in. And there was yep. a really interesting study done by Atelier 10 for Urban Green in New York. They did it. They basically looked at single-family residential home and some um, residential towers um, and an office buildings, typical in New York City. And they, they did a simulation for different envelope, you know, uh, typical installed code and high performance. And they simulated how long it would take after a power outage in the middle of, of a winter storm and in the middle of a summer heat wave for the inside of the building to become uninhabitable for humans. Wow, that's fascinating. What, what, did, what did they find? Um, not long for the typical building. I mean, we're talking less than a day for it to get, you know, above 90 degrees, C, degrees Fahrenheit inside the building. But if you put a really good envelope on it, it can maintain what they call passive survivability for several days. And that's usually all you need for a normal urban power out. Right, right. But if it... As opposed to hours. Right. And, and if you look at the data, more people die from these kind of issues, the severe weather events, like a, the um, a winter storm issues. The collateral issues. Than they do from the actual event, you know, the hurricane or the, right. the tornado or whatever themselves. Yes, the collateral issues, the environmental issues, the sanitary issues, more than the tree falling on the person, right. typically. Right. And That's a fast. So Atelia 10 did that study. Yeah, it's freely available, just, um, and it's on the Urban Green uh, website. They Urban have a little Green. calculator that you can, or a, a little um, interactive system that you can pick the building. Fantastic. And type. It's very instructive. In fact, I think I wrote it's, a blog on it some some time ago but it it really just says to to me again that the envelope is more important than just meeting an eui right of course if you're just meeting an eui you're just meeting one specific metric overall metric indicator there's many other layers to the development and installation and performance of the facade you know it's interesting because Mechanical systems, obviously, all are predicated on the fact that you have to have power. Mm -hmm. And this is similar when I I mean, things may have changed. So forgive me if there's fire suppression people listening. 
when I was a building plans examiner, examiner, a code official in between my curtain wall stints, my boss was a big proponent of compartmentalization. It's a similar thing as electric, you know, a powered mechanical system and a low performing facade. Um, a building that's heavily reliant on fire suppression versus compartmentalization. I would talk to my boss, the chief code official, he would say, I go for compartmentalization every time because things break down, systems aren't maintained. Mm -hmm. Filters, sprinkler heads, they get clogged. Right. You know, the, the chemical system isn't recharged. And so then you wind up, if you do get a fire, you can wind up with a terrible event. But if you're compartmentalized, you're going to, a compartmentalization won't work as well as if you have a functional suppression system. But if the suppression system is broken, the whole building's going to burn down. With a compartmentalized, you can close it. And it's a similar analogy, I think, you know, going for a reasonably well-performing facade along with a well-performing mechanical yeah. system. Yeah. So yeah, 355 days a year, you've got the mechanical system. Right. But those other 10 days could be catastrophic to building occupants. Well, and the other thing to bear in mind too, is if we're ever gonna get to net zero, you can't rely on a high performance HVAC system. You have right. to drive the performance through the envelope. So, right. um, you know, to get to net zero, you have to focus on the envelope. And so, you know, one of the things that um, I really love is what they call outcome-based codes. And you can see what's happening in New York City. Um, you know, people have been talking about local law 97. And it's basically, um, you know, if you see what New York's done, they've shown the roadmap to get from, you know, where we are with these typical performance-based simulation codes to a real outcome-based codes. Because what they did first is they said with our existing buildings, what we're gonna do is we're gonna make you building owner report the energy usage. So they built systems for reporting. Then they got all this information of all the buildings in New York. And so they can aggregate the data. They can figure out what the average is for a particular building type and you know get all the data. They've got the reporting structure. Uh, and now they've got all the statistics. Now what they can say is, okay, now Mr. Building Owner, you need to hit this energy target for your building every year. And if you don't miss, if you don't meet, uh, meet the target, I'm gonna fine you based on how much you go over this target per square foot per year. Gotcha. And that's what they're doing. So they have targets set for 2024. So they'll start, you know, having these fines come 2024 and then they um, ratchet up the targets in 2030 and one assumes they will continue to do this um, past 2030. So this is for existing buildings. Yeah. So, but it turns out that it's also for new buildings because as soon as you build a new building, it becomes an existing building. Right, exactly. So not only do you need to meet the typical new construction code, you've really got to be thinking in your mind, oh, well, I've got to meet this new existing building outcome-based code, which says that when I build my building, it's got to at least meet or exceed that target. And you've probably got to be thinking in your mind that not only does it need to meet the target in yep. two or three years' time, it's got to meet the 2030 target, 2030. And it's got to, you've got to have some idea about how you're going to continue to meet the target as you ratchet up, because that's going to have an issue, not just on, um, you know, the, the, the building uh, owner being fined, but also on how easy it is 
to get it up to the next target over right. the you know, next few decades. So building for serviceability and maintainability and upgradability now starts to be at the front end of the, the design discussion. So does durability. Yeah. You know, now it doesn't, now first cost isn't the only thing that we're dealing with here. It's the operating cost that isn't just about energy anymore. It's about those fines. And, you know, it's so, it's like a virtuous cycle of, of, of risk <laughs> management and in investing in the, the right materials and the best design up front, making sure that you're, ma you're not value engineering and that you're managing the commissioning and the installation processes and that you're figuring out, you're training the people who are operating the building and living in the buildings. And you know, and if, if people are listening to this, depending on where they're listening from, what, what context, they may just be going, yeah, great, sounds great, dollars, 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 dollars. But my experience is for a small increase in dollars, you can drive a tremendous amount of value downstream. It's not, oh, just add more money due to compliance, more money due to compliance, more money. If it's done correctly, concurrently, and so some of it also depends not only on building typology, but owner type or goal. So some developers might be building to, to just basically appreciate that asset, quickly flip it, sell it. Others, colleges, hospital campuses, um, long-term holders, they have a vested interest in that. But now, even if they don't have a vested interest in that, the city is saying, well, whoever gets it's going to have to have a vested yeah. interest. Which will so you have to think of that up front. Yeah, it'll discount the price and, if, you don't, and I, if you haven't future-proofed it. I like your comment about value engineering. I always make a, a – this is one of my soapbox, one of my quips, because as, a, as an engineer, people will say, well, well, we're value engineering that. And I say – well, people focus on value, but not engineering, meaning you want to make it cheaper, but if you want to make it cheaper and still have it perform, you need to make sure it still meets the performance criteria for the project, which oftentimes when something comes to us as a VE, it's on our consulting side of the business because now it's a, a risk assessment or a forensic investigation because it's failing. So I want to circle back on the, on the DOE you said you developed a paper for the DOE mm -hmm. basically recommending. Can, can you resummarize that again? Your primary recommendation from facade tectonics was what? Uh, well, we had multiple, uh, they had multiple sections that we were giving feedback on, but one of the primary, um, one of the primary recommendations was to support um, uh, code stringency increases or changing the structure of codes for outcome-based um, outcome based yeah, yeah and to really improve the um, the system whereby we're actually taking into account all of these parasitic losses because what we're finding is that you can't you can't get a payback on some of these thermal um, bridging uh, technologies uh, or technologies yeah. to address thermal bridging because they're not captured in the code they're not captured in the simulation because if the simulation assumes they're not there, even though they really are, you don't get the payback. Right, exactly. So you have to make your simulation tools really um, more sophisticated in order to see the issues 
And therefore, the new technologies that are coming on, therefore, then can show more of a payback. That makes sense. Um, that's good to know that you're involved at that level. Um, let, let's wrap up the EUI conversation, too, because we talked a lot about EUI, and it's, it's relatively new to me. Um, and you talked about EUI myopia. It's, what is your, how do you propose to people um, in your work with Technoform or in your work as a facade advocate, how would you view it? If you were trying to persuade somebody to not just focus on EUI, what would you be telling them to do? So um, I, would be I would be telling them to look at other metrics. Um, if you do what they're doing in Vancouver, and in uh, Singapore, then you'd have metrics just around the thermal um, transfer at the envelope. So in, um, in Singapore, they have um, energy transfer value. Um, I, I, I think I haven't got that quite right. Uh, oh, envelope. Uh, envelope thermal transfer value. That's what ETDV is. So they're just looking at how much energy is flowing through the em envelope. I see. In Vancouver, in or British Columbia, in in general, they're they're using a metric called TEDI, um, which is thermal envelope demand intensity. So it's a similar thing. So they are specifically looking again at the quality of the envelope and setting metrics based on that. So that's I see. one thing I would do. I would also have metrics um, associated with um, thermal comfort. Passive survivability, which again is linked with the with the envelope metrics. I would also um, look at um, also at the carbon, the embodied carbon piece. A lot of people forget that we have carbon emissions emitted when we make building materials. Yeah, because we've we again we've had this myopia of building energy management, which has been great. But we can't forget the embodied carbon. And one of the things that really drives embodied carbon is lifetime of the building. So if, if, if you think about a building, you know, building lifetime, you know, is it 25 years? Is it 50 years? Is it 200 years? I mean, you can imagine then if you're building service life as 100 years versus 25 years, you're going to have a lot less embodied carbon in the latter because you have to replace it, the former, four times to with all that um, additional materials. Mm -hmm. And so lifetime is really important. Uh, and my colleague at Facade Tectonics, Mick Patterson, um, spends a lot of time talking about this. You know, my soapbox is really about durability because one of the things we have to be careful with when we're designing buildings and we're focusing on the thermal performance of the materials that are going into the building, we can't get hung up on the last second or third decimal place on thermal performance if it has a negative impact on durability. Mm. So we have to be so careful, you know, with that. I mean, I, I think about that when I, when I think about IG durability, insulating glass durability. Okay. And as Mick says often, you know, we've gone from a single pane glass, single pane piece of glass, which has really poor energy performance, but right. it lasts for centuries, right? Now we've gone to a dual pane unit where it has much better thermal performance, but it now only lasts, what, 
20, 30 years. Right. So, you know, we go, and then we go to triple pane, which has again, yeah. not a thermal performance, but you've added a third pane of glass. And as you add additional panes with additional cavities, you increase the stress on the insulating glass edge seal, which yeah. potentially also degrades the service life. Right. And then you look at the edge, you know, when you're thinking about going to, um, uh, you know, focusing on, and I always, I'm always a proponent for focusing on the edge, but you only, uh, for, for thermal performance, but don't go so far that you trade durability, um, for thermal performance. So you trade. It's all a balance. Carbon. Yeah. So you have to be, you know, you, you you've really got to take a step back and really um, make sure that you're, you know, trading off the right uh, performance parameters because maybe going the extra 0.005 in U-factor um, isn't going to make a big deal difference right. in operational energy, but it could have a significant impact on maybe the lifetime of some of the components in the building. Yeah, so, I mean, you thoughtful design thoughtful ownership thoughtful development um i mean the europeans have proven and and you you come from over there that you know you can build buildings at a high performance for a long time and people can still afford to live in them um i know the economics are different everywhere but um yeah it yeah yeah so I, Go ahead. I was going to say that kind of goes back to the conversation we had earlier about existing technologies aren't being adopted here. And, it, and it's not necessarily cost effectiveness, because if you look at our latest energy codes, you know, a 0.38 is um, a U factor for fenestration for climate zones like uh, four, four and five. Okay. And um, typically it's not used. You know, point three. You know, typically you might see a four two or or higher used in yeah. because of the trade off, and the people aren't using point three eight not because it's not shown to be cost effective because it clearly has been, but it's probably just not the cheapest route to getting to that building result. Right. So you're saying that the we still have that lack of performance in the wall, but we're getting to the overall building performance. So when you, when you say and I and I've experienced this as well. We've got innovative products. We're just not using them. Are, are you saying we're we're having a hard time introducing new products to the market, or we've got the products out there? They're just not being widely adopted on a, in a broad enough manner. Which also, as we talked, it brings the cost down, right? It creates competition. So, it, are both of those realities true? It's a, it's an adoption issue. I mean, even look at look at Warm Edge Spacer, for example. I mean, you've got. You know, I was just doing a, you know, look at, at just a general look at the specifications. Majority of specifications out there don't even mention a spacer. So they get aluminum. 80%, you know, plus or minus of, of specifications or a glass that's made, made with aluminum still. It doesn't have to be like that. Right. Perfectly good, durable solutions that have been on the market for 20 plus years and have shown. 20 plus, yep. And yet it's not adopted because if it's not in the specification, it doesn't have to be used and it's, uh, you know, marginally more expensive than, than the aluminum. So. And yeah. It, and often I see it in the specification 
I see a warm edge spacer, a stainless steel spacer, another form of warm edge spacer, but it's not enforced because maybe there's a lack of understanding in different, different code officials, different areas. It, it's not a concern anyway. So, you know, there are many layers, but certainly you have to start with in, informing and educating, getting things in specs, and making sure people understand the impact of that specification, right? Yeah, and code enforcement, you know, and make sure right. that people um, are using simulation tools correctly. Um, inputs to simulation tools are, are made um, correctly. You know, there's there's lots yeah. of there's lots of issues um, and hurdles to get over. Um, I think it it boils down to education. And, and codes, making sure that what we have are enforced and then figuring out how to make them better. I mean, if you yeah. look across the United States, I mean, people are still, some states are still using codes that were developed a decade ago. Right. Using ASHRAE uh, uh, 90.1 uh, 2010. Yeah. Talk about uh, any other comments on, on carbon product product, myopia, that, that sort of thing, or did you pretty much touch on what you wanted to talk about with carbon? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes, for me, it's about, um, well, actually, the two things that, that I get on my soapbox about are the durability and lifetime piece and trade-off with thermal performance. The other one is product-level EPDs, so environmental product declarations. So okay. a lot of architects right now are asking manufacturers to give them environmental product declarations in order for them to be considered with pro, uh, for, for projects, which at a first level seems a reasonable thing to ask. But what they're doing is they're comparing one product EPD with another, which basically saying this, when I make this product, this is how much CO2 gets emitted. This product, you know, um, why CO2 gets emitted. And if X is less than Y, then potentially they choose X. The problem with that is that the calculation for carbon emissions um, in these EPDs has a massive error bar on them. And gotcha. They should be done through the same rules. Sometimes mm -hmm. they are, sometimes they aren't. If they're sourced from different databases, they can have um, numbers that are very different from each other. So that has its pitfalls. And what I really want to encourage um, everyone to do is, is kind of take a step back up to the 10,000 foot level. And the first question you should ask is, you know, do I really need to build this building? Mm -hmm. If I need to build this building, how small can I make it? Then how do I extend the service life? And then for the really big impact products like, you know, concrete and steel, where mm -hmm. can I source them from that minimizes the, um, the carbon impact? So if I look at aluminum, I don't need an, uh, an EPD from, for aluminum necessarily. All I should say is I want to source it from an area, uh, from a manufacturer who um, uses um, electricity for an already green grid, you know, hydroelectric, which most of aluminum in the United States or North America in general is. So if you want to stop Chinese imports coming in, 
ask for um, aluminum to be sourced from manufacturers who use a green grid, and then you'll you'll get it from North America. That's good. So then, that's excellent. But then, when you get down to the you know the product level, it's you can end up with some potentially negative or unintended consequences. And I was just talking to one of my colleagues just recently about this because um, this is going to be a subject of, of a blog in, a, in a, a month or so. Because at the, at the product level, I just think about glass right now. So glass is made through furnaces that are, are fueled by uh, natural gas. Nobody's figured out how to electrify that yet. Right. Now, old furnaces are less efficient than the new furnaces. So if you said, you know, I'm thinking about California and their AB 262, where they, um, they set a carbon minimum for flat glass. So if you say, well, I'm therefore not going to buy glass from any manufacturer that manufactures in an old furnace, I'm only going to buy from you. Are you then telling that, manufacturer that they really need to knock down that furnace and build a new one well that's not good for embodied carbon right there there you go so you know is that the message you want to send to the market Um, interesting so that's one kind of negative um, consequence the other thing is that they are very expensive to do epds cost about thirty thousand dollars before you even get started for one product Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. About the the poor, the small glass fabricators, how can you afford to do that? Yeah, well, it has to be a a budgeted uh, a budgeted item for a particular year, you know. Yeah, but um, one product. So one product. So then you think about, so, but then if you look at, at insulating glass, and then you see that the majority of the impacts are from flat glass, and then it's from heat treatment and coating. Do you then start to say, well, maybe I don't really care so much about who's making it. I really care about the flat glass impacts. You know, how much glass am I using? How thick it is? How thick is it? Um, Whether I'm heat treating it or not. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the coating, you know, am I going to put a coating on it? And, you know, and how many panes am I going from two to three? You know, those are the big issues. And maybe I don't really care so much about you know, whether fabricator A is making it versus fabricator B, I should be more concerned about uh, the, you know, whether I'm asking them to heat treat it uh, versus not, whether I'm asking them to use three panes rather than two. And then maybe I should just ask them, tell me what your plan is for reducing carbon usage in your in your facility over time, you know, yes, maybe give me an EPD or, or find a way of doing it less expensively and show me just over time that you're doing the right thing with carbon. Yeah. We have to look beyond the surface of the piece of paper, beyond the surface of the specific report. We have to have some logic and some depth to the right analysis. Yeah. So um, we're, uh, pr- we're probably running up against an hour now and we've, We've hit on a number of times. There's a lot here, a lot here for um, architects, a lot here for building owners, a lot here for industry folks, and and many. You know, some of my podcasts have covered kind of an entrepreneurial focus. This one is much more technical, and I'm glad it is because it hits on many of the hot topics in our industry. 
Um, let's, uh, let's wrap up a little bit. Certainly education, training, information is key. Um, so I appreciate the work you're doing. I know we've supported facade tectonics as well. And um, we've got um, some other organizations with Architects Newsletter. They, they have you know, their Facades Plus and we have a lot of good information out there. But it is difficult to congeal all that information sometime. Um, obviously I'm a big proponent of having somebody with consultative expertise, whether that's coming from a manufacturer or an independent consultant. Because you know, merging all this information together in a cohesive manner is is not that hard for the experience, but very difficult for those who aren't. Um, so you're a busy person. Um, you're involved in facade tectonics in addition to your work at Techniform. Um, where can we find you? Where can people find you on social media? Are you on LinkedIn? Yep, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and What's your, is it at Helen Sanders on LinkedIn? Um, it's just Helen Sanders. Um, yeah, and you can um, also see uh, a blog that we do monthly hosted by US Glass uh, Magazine. And I also do a column bi-monthly um, in the print version of US Glass Magazine, which you can also see online. Yes, that's a good blog. What about Twitter? Are you on Twitter? I have not ventured into the, the Twitter sphere at this point. <laughs> I always wonder whether anyone actually wants to know what I'm doing on a minute by minute basis. So <laughs> that's funny. You'd be surprised more people than more people than you would expect I would am, do that. I, I am on Instagram just because I look at what my kids are doing. Sure. I'm a stalker on Instagram just because. So so from a business perspective, the best place to find you was on LinkedIn, yeah. in the blogs, through Facade Tectonics. Any other work coming up through Facade Tectonics in the near future? Any other conferences or seminars or online events or anything? Yeah, so we have our New York Forum um, that is happening on November 4th. So if you yeah. know, we'll be just, we'll be able to hang over after the election. Um, it, but, you know, it, it is virtual. So even though it's quote our New York Forum, it's really open to anyone, whatever geography you are, you're you're in, and it really the that is our one of our best regional forums. Um, they're always high quality. I would recommend anybody um, tuning in for that. It's uh, as I said, it's on the fourth of November. Um, we have our we have a save the date going out for next year for an awards um, and recognition ceremony, really to um, recognize those who are driving high-performance facades. And one Outstanding. The, yeah, one of the things that Facade Tectonics tries to do is, is break down the silos between the participants. Yeah. And we really, um, one, of, one of them um, is really focused on, on the team, uh, on teamwork and how... Uh, yep. really recognizing a team that's done a great job on uh, bringing a project to, to fruition. So we, we have a lot going on. We have a new website. So all our um, papers from, from multiple years will be available on the website for members. Um, please, if you want to join, it, we, it's, there's a wealth of information there. A great member, great member benefits. I mean, we're trying to change the world of facades, right? 
and you know we we need more people to help us do that we have an advocacy committee please join us which at the moment we're working with um the folks at the california energy commission on the next version of title 24 um we previous to that have given some comments to um, lead version 4 um we will start to do some more work in the code arena because I think we've, as we talked about, come to the conclusion that we need to do something about the code landscape to, to move the envelope forward. What, what an outstanding piece of work. That, that's fantastic. It's a great organization with a great vision. It's a lifetime of work. Um, combine that with, you know, I like your comment about break down the silos. We need to be building community and collaborating within industry and between industries at the world is moving in that direction and should continue to in terms of um, bringing the information and the people together to build better communities, better products, better environments. National Glass Association um, is working to that as well. People in codes, it, it's really advanced quite significantly over the last decade and I'm really happy to see it. So um, I know you're going to disagree with me when I say this as we wrap up, but um, I'm John Wheaton. She's Helen Sanders. If you didn't know her before, you've been listening to a rock star in the industry, um, an innovator, somebody who really cares, who's really invested, who really knows what she's talking about, um, has really proven um, her capabilities over the years. Um, I really appreciate everything you've done for facades and exterior cladding and for innovation and industry and we probably could have talked the whole time. I'm, I'm deeply interested about women in construction and women in, in STEM. We could have talked the whole time about that, but um, thank you for the time you've devoted. I know you're super busy and I really appreciate it. Well, it's been my pleasure and you say the nicest things. <laughs> it's true. I'm flattered. It's true. So um, thank you ladies and gentlemen for listening. Um, until next time, uh, we will we'll see you later and uh, we'll look forward to your comments and to listening on our Buzzsprout feed, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio and all the others. Helen, thank you. Have a great, have a great evening. Thank you very much, John.